Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to my favourite time of the week. And I am delighted to have Sharon Shackle with me, who is the CEO of the Marketing Academy. And Sherilyn has uh, had a very successful headhunting business before that, but her real passion that she started 10 years ago was the Marketing Academy, taking people in the marketing sector and improving, developing and uh, getting to become great leaders. And I'm fortunate to work with Sherilyn as one of the coaches of CMOs who want to become CEOs. And I've met some fascinating people. And you surround yourself with fascinating people, don't you? I'm very, very privileged. Very, very lucky. Yes, I have yeah. got some yeah. amazing people around us. And there's about, what, 1,200 or so? Yeah, there's about, uh, there's 1,200 people in total involved in the academy across the three countries. So we're in the UK, the US and Australia. And yeah, there's about 1,200 people and I think they're all rather magnificent. Yeah, you have some great people. We'll talk about that in Inspiring Leadership Extra in the second session. Sure. But but in this one, we were talking about who who's inspired you. And mm. you mentioned your mum and mm. you mentioned a sort of generic group because you couldn't specific at least say one person, because there's a group, so many, you meet some great people. Yeah. But talk about mum. Tell, tell, why, why, why was mum the person you'd chosen as an oh, inspiring God. leader? She was so wonderful. So she's no longer with us. Um, but I think of her age, she was a very, very different type of type of mother and type of woman. So I'm 55, so this is back in the sort of late 60s, early 70s. My mum was, was an entrepreneur. She owned um, a shop. So, so I'm a shopkeeper's daughter, but she was the one that worked and my father was the house husband, yeah. which in those days was incredibly unique. Very modern. And therefore, whilst I didn't realise it at the time, she was role modelling a behaviour that kind of continued for me mm. pretty much for the rest of my life. And in fact, I replicated it later because my husband is a house husband at yeah. the rock and centre of my world. But he has been at home with our children since our children were, were little. Yeah. And he's enabled me to fly in yeah. my in my working career in the way that my father did for my mum. So I was brought up with this amazing woman who could light up a room, who was larger than life, who was a gorgeous, charismatic woman, who never believed that there was any difference between being a female or being male. Yeah. I literally grew up not even understanding what the differences between the, the genders were, Brilliant. especially in a working context. Yeah, I yeah. had no concept of that. Um, and one of the reasons why I now, in hindsight, realise how fabulous a mother she was is that she always told me that, one, I was beautiful, and that, two, I was capable of anything and everything. So she had such belief in me mm. that she would say, you know, you're going to get to the top, you are. And I never really knew what that meant, but you're going to get to the top, you're going to do this and you're going to do that. And I'm going to be really honest, I completely believed her. Yeah. <laughs> I just I literally believed every word that this fabulous woman told me. And therefore, I was lucky enough to grow up with really strong sense of self-belief. Yeah. 
I, I've never had confidence crisis. I've never lacked uh, a sense of my own worth or my own value. Yeah. And I am convinced that that was because my mum enabled me to believe that anything was possible. Yeah, and, and what, a, what a lovely role model. And of course, as parents with our own children, it's a sort of fine line between um, being soccer mums and, and, and cheering them on and expecting great things and protecting children from things, but also oh, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in bringing them on. Because psychologically, many humans suffer from the unmet needs of their parents who thought they were going to be the prime minister or something like that. And they wanted the child to do it for yeah. them because they yeah. didn't do it themselves. But it sounds like your mum got it right because you did get to the top. You ran your own business, very successful headhunting business, and now you're the CEO of the Marketing Academy. Yeah. In the second group of, of, you know, if you weren't going to pick an individual, what were the qualities that you find make and inspire you? In your, in yeah. your people who inspired you and that you meet and you meet them <coughs> all the time and, you know, what, what, what qualities? If you pick three qualities that you really admire. Pick how many? Three. 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 <gasps> three. Okay. Um, brutal honesty mm-hmm. in that they are real. Mm. They are who they say they are. They are, what you see is what you get. Mm. They are revealing of who they are. So I love the word authentic, but it's so overused. (laughs) And it just means real and honest, right? Mm. And I believe that the best, the strongest, the most inspirational leaders are those who kind of show up as who they are in in every and any context. So they're consistently Yeah, consistency. Yeah, that's really important. It's important not only in our sleep that we get consistent patterns of sleep when we go to bed <laughs> and when we wake up, but it's also in how we show up. And I know I, I talk about the integrated leader, inspiring leader, and the disintegrated inspiring leader. And I know in my life that when I've been a poorer leader is when I've not been consistent. Mm. And when I've been at my best is when I'm just me. Yeah. Uh, whether I'm in my social life or in my work life. And I, you've picked some fabulous people that I've been lucky enough to work with as part of your marketing academy who, who really get that. Mm. And we've all, we're all work in progress, aren't we? And it can be learned. Yeah. In that you can learn how to drop your guard. You can find courage to be who you are in every given context. So you can learn it. And I believe that leaders can be shaped if you can find a way to unleash the real them and then give them the confidence they need to be that in all circumstance. So so that kind of realness, the the desire to just share who they are for what they are, that's such an important element of leadership in my view. And that takes me nicely on to the penultimate part, which is in your life when you got it wrong, mm. <laughs> what did you learn from it and how did that shape the leader? Remember you talked about yourself in the early days as, mm. a, as a leader. What was it you got wrong and what have you learned about it which makes you a better leader now? I used to, I, was, I had the arrogance of youth <laughs> and I was in positions of quite high level of responsibility or accountability quite young and I believed I knew it all. Honestly, I thought I was the dog's bollocks when it came to leadership and I thought I had nothing to learn. And, oh, my God, I could not have been further from the truth. So how I used to be uh, in a leadership role was incredibly controlling. Yeah. So I was a manager. 
Yeah. You know, I, I, I told people what to do. I told them how to do it in the time that they needed to do it, when they needed to deliver it by. And I had a spreadsheet to prove that that's what they were going to do. So I led them by command and control yeah. with a little bit of charisma and probably some humour, but that's how I led. And I didn't realise until later in my life that leadership, real leadership, is the flip opposite of that. I never empowered or inspired my people to do mm. it for themselves. Yeah. I wasn't developing them. I was telling them that they couldn't do it without me telling them what to do. Yeah. So I was sending them a message that basically said, I don't feel that you're actually as good as I am. Yeah. And therefore, I'm going to tell you what to do and how to do it because I know best. Yeah. The flip opposite of what great leaders do. Yeah, fascinating. Finally, what would be your top tip that you'd leave the listeners with? Um, so my top leadership tip would be give 10 times more than you'd ever, ever expect to get. So if, if in all of your leadership decision-making, you think, what can I give this person to enable them to be better? Uh, what can I give to my client to enable them to achieve more? Uh, what can I give to the people around me? How much love can I show to the people around me? If you focus on others instead of self, mm. then what actually you get in return is remarkable. Yeah. But if your focus is on give and not get, you will immediately become a better, more inspirational, more inf influential leader. So that would be my best. Sharon, thank you. And you actually model that because I think what you've achieved in the 10 years with the Marketing Academy is phenomenal. And, and you are role modeling, giving, not getting. So thank you. It's thank a real you. pleasure having you thank on the show. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to Inspiring Leadership Extra. Um, I'm very lucky to carry on the conversation with Sharon Lynn Shackle, the CEO of the Marketing Academy. Sharon, let's, let's have a talk about early life. You mentioned mum was a great inspiration to yeah, you. Yes, she was. Um, to tell us about your early life and how it shaped you as the leader you are today. Okay. Because we've already talked about her being, you know, the shopkeeper, the entrepreneur, mm. that you could do anything she believed in you. She really encouraged you. And I relate to that because my mother was very good in, in helping me believe in myself. But um, what, what else shaped you as, as the leader you are that we meet today? I think there's a few things that happened um, early on. So I, I had a very comfortable childhood, very, very loved um, and financially quite comfortable, wealthy, but comfortable um, because she was a successful businesswoman. And my father was 20 years older than my mum and looking after me. Um, my sister's 10 years older than me, so she married at 18. I was still quite young. So I was like the only child at home right. from the age of about eight. And I had 100% of my father's time and, you know, a mother who was just incredibly loving. And because she was a shopkeeper, it was shopkeeping hours. Yeah. So, you know, I was really lucky to have a lot of their time and their adoration and my mum certainly completely adored me uh, and my sister but obviously I experienced it um, but I left school at 16 yeah so I chose not to go to college or anywhere <laughs> because my mum said come and work in the business all right so at 16 years old I was working in the shop and uh, uh, frequently running it my my mum and my father would go on holidays a lot they would go on cruises <laughs> and um and at 16 16 and a half they'd leave me running the shop with mm -hmm. the staff you know with the money so quite a lot of responsibility wow. quite young 
Um, and of course, I was earning an income from 16. And once you do that, it's very, very hard to let go. So, uh, so that was kind of my life until I was 19. And then when I was 19, two things happened in quick succession. So my father dropped dead of a heart attack one really? night. Okay. Um, so as I said, he was 20 Did you years... see that coming? We didn't see it coming. He, he, he was Looking older. Looking back, do you know what No, no, it? not really. He was, he was older than my mum. He had had heart problems when he was a bit younger. Um, but we weren't expecting that. It was, he, he was 70, but he, uh, 72 actually, I think. But he was fit and healthy, 72. So it was a complete shock to mm. all of us. I'm sorry, so sorry. But the net result of it is about six months after we lost him, my mum, this fantastic woman who, you know, would just light up a room, mm. descended into the hell that is mental illness. Right. And at that time, so little was known about it. Mental health wasn't discussed. It was pushed under the carpet. People meant, went into mental homes, that's what we called them. Mm. Um, and if you were mad, as my mum used to describe it, if you were mad, you'd get shuffled off in a, in a white straight jacket and, mm. you know, put in a mental home. And so we knew very little about it. And even I don't think doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, were, they were only really understanding what it really was. So she was undiagnosed for a while. Um, and now, in hindsight, you know, all what of you, her, What did you see behaviours? All of the behaviours that you expect to see now in people that are diagnosed with schizophrenia or chronic depression or manic depression, she had the lot. Massive manic highs, really suicidal lows, manic psychotic episodes, and we saw it all in a really short space of time. And within two years, pretty much, well, no less than that, 18 months, um, she was pretty much bankrupt. We, we lost the... Uh, the business, we lost the family home. Um, we were literally, the, the businesses were bankrupt. She was literally bankrupt. And um, myself, when I was 20, I think it was 20, maybe 21, myself and my sister had to have her committed, which is what you used to do mm. in those days. So we had to sign the forms to say she needs to be hospitalised. And she was in and out of um a mental institution for the best part of two years mm. and she had electric shock treatment as they used to do then I think they still do it actually but even then they didn't understand how it worked or why it worked mm. they would just say to us we need to fry your mum's brain but just trust us it, it will work it's barbaric. Um, barbaric. It, it was totally barbaric and and if I'm completely honest well she well she lived for another 15 years um she never came back we you lost never her got then. your mum. Oh, God, no, not even close. Not a, sh a shadow of, of who she was. We lost her then. You know, I feel like I lost her at the age of 20, 21, not, not long after losing um, my dad. And, you know, she never came back. She lived this Gosh. half grey life yeah. um, on lithium and diazepam and drug to the eyeballs. And she lived in a, in a, in a home. Yeah. And, and and she was young. Yeah. I mean, I the, when I was 20-odd, you know, and she was in her early 50s, she was younger than I am now. Yeah. I mean, I used to think, I mean, she's old, it's okay. But, of course, she wasn't. No. She's, no. You know, she was about 53 when this happened, so two years younger than I am now. And um, and she never, ever, ever recovered. And she stayed in, in uh, you know, what they used to call care in the community. Mm. 
in this horrible, horrible, horrible half-life. And so that really informed and shaped Gosh, who, who, I just can't who, imagine who I then became. Well, it was horrific for her. And just um, seeing how she was having to live that life was... It was beyond tragic, and it, and it was for years and years and years. And, you know, at the very early stages, I kind of ran away from it. I, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't face into it. I couldn't grieve Who could? because she was still alive. Yeah. So oh, we couldn't, God. we just couldn't work things through. It took me a long time. So I ran. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to take any responsibility for this. It's too big. You know, I can't take responsibility but, but, for my But mom. what 20-year-old could take responsibility yeah, well, for that? I in, mean, I... in hindsight, I can... You know, I've, no, I've rationalised that no, in my head. But, but we, we give ourselves huge guilt for these awful situations we find ourselves in and blame ourselves. But mm. it was just circumstances. Yeah. It, no one deliberately did this. She, mother didn't want to have the breakdown that she did because she lost her soulmate. Yeah. But it, it, it triggered her. It did trigger in a, in, a, in a massive way. And so what that did for me really, well, firstly, I had to fend for myself. Yeah. So I'd been in quite a privileged position, mm. um, you know, be, being in an extremely tight, warm family environment to pretty much nothing, you know. Yeah. So always feeling that like I had this safety blanket, mm. emotionally and financially, had this safety blanket. And then at 21, that's gone. I've got, it's gone. There's yeah. nothing apart from my sister. I'm, I'm one of the outcomes of it is a really, really powerful, close relationship yeah. with my sister that we may not have had had this not happened Correct. because there's an age difference between yeah. us um and she, also it must have massively shaped the way you know with your headhunting business which we'll talk about in, in a moment how you you drove and created your own business which was very successful because you wanted to who knows psychologically what drove it but to make sure that you were okay, that you had your own safety net because you couldn't rely on anybody else. Well, precisely. But that <laughs> that may not have ultimately proved useful in that what it definitely did is it, drew, it, it triggered a need for control. Yeah. So I'm, I'm completely comfortable now looking back in hindsight that that was the net result of this horrific period in which I had control over nothing. Have you ever had any psychotherapy for this? No, I haven't. I haven't. You've never gone over No, this. no, no, never. But I am a talker <laughs> yeah. and I'm a, quite a revealer. Yes. So I'm probably the opposite of somebody that like battens it all down yeah. and keeps it yeah. all in. I don't do that. <laughs> I emote. <laughs> and therefore, everybody that anybody that's really close to me uh, knows, all, knows all of this. I've never concealed it I've never held back how I felt no. about it um and therefore I think I've managed to work it through without without you know trying to I honestly feel like I've dealt with it, all of it yeah as, a, as I've gone through in my life yeah. but what it definitely did is it set me on a path on an earlier path of needing control needing security yeah and having a fundamental fear that my life at any moment could be somebody could just pull the rug yeah. outside of my control. Yeah. And therefore the kind of boss I was 
as I went up through the kind of the my 20s and 30s. What did you go into first? I, I literally fell into recruitment pretty much okay. straight after this period. So I was 23 years old. I was living in Bristol, Bright Lights Bid City. I'm from Bournemouth, very parochial, touristy, um, gentle town. Oh, and I'd I know, moved like to Bristol more. with yeah. a boyfriend. Um, and I was in my early 20s and I was literally, whilst my mum was going through this hell, um, I was trying to stay as far away from it as I possibly could, yeah. um, doing any job I could do just to earn money. Yeah. And uh, I was in a pub one night and didn't know I was in between jobs. I was just temping, doing part-times, anything. I didn't care. Yeah. Uh, and partying quite a lot. I was really good at partying. Um, and was that an escape? Oh, all of it was an escape. Absolutely, it, yeah. was an es it was an escape. That whole time period was. Um, so at 23, I was in a pub and thought, I was already starting to think, I need to take some responsibility for my life, right? I'd lived with boyfriends. I'd used men to support me financially. Okay. I'd, I'd partied too hard. I was irresponsible. Mm. And I'd already started to think, my God, I can't go on like this. This can't mm. be my life. I need to take some ownership. But seeing my mum go out into caring, care in the community, seeing these absolute shitholes that they wanted this wonderful woman to live in. And I was thinking, God, at some point I have to be financially responsible and yeah. secure. So having these thoughts in my mind, in a pub one night, say to a guy that I've met randomly, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm in between jobs, don't know what to do. And he said you should get into recruitment. And I said, well, what is it? I didn't even know what it was. Never really had an office job in my life. I'd been in retail. And um, he said, oh, well, you know, you're selling people. And I thought, oh my God, how cool is that? So there's no end of people out there. <laughs> so mm. there must be no end of supply. There's no end of demand. What a cool thing. And I said, what do you have to be good at to get into that? And he said, you don't have to be good at anything to get into recruitment. And I thought, <laughs> all right, that's it. I have found the career for me. Have you told your friends in recruitment yeah. since then that that's the, yes. the, the criteria? Yes, I have. You don't, you don't need, you need to have... You need to have the soft skills, right? But you don't need to have much experience. And I was 23 years old with bug all experience. Um, and, uh, and he hired me. He gave me my first job in recruitment at the age of 23. Um, and that defined the next 20 years. So I, I fell into recruitment in a very male industry. I didn't even realise. Oh, really? <laughs> I was one of the first female hires in this firm that probably had about 200 guys in it. I didn't even recognise that I was the only woman in it. I was quite kind of stereotypically gender blind because yeah. my mum had never made an issue out of it. She'd never, she wasn't a feminist. Mm. Oh, at all. I think she was the flip opposite of that. But she was a businesswoman in her own right. And yeah. a totally equal to my father. And I never saw this sort of gender imbalance thing. Mm. I never looked for it, so I never saw it. And I, and I arrive at this recruitment business and it's all guys. And I don't even recognise that. Mm. I don't know. I asked to get pointed out to me. You do realise you're only two... You're only one of two female consultants in this in this firm. And I go, oh, yeah. It just never occurred to me. Um, <laughs> what, I, what advantage did that give you, being only the one or one of two out of all the guys? What, 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 what advantage did you find it had, rather than disadvantage? What advantage? I have no idea. I haven't even thought about it. Yeah. I, don't, I, wouldn't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I like it. Because you probably it? had a, a, a extra soft skills, which they didn't have. I Maybe. Mean, your ability to relate to people and really get under the skin of people very Maybe. quickly. I think is All a, I knew is I was really, really good at it. Yeah. <coughs> so, 
so um, I, I don't know whether that was about my gender or, or uh, and And or. what was the bit of the recruitment that you enjoyed the most? Because we talked later, and we were talking about this, that it wasn't really what your heart was in for. But what mm. were the bits you did enjoy about it? I enjoyed being able to help someone think through the changes that they wanted to make in their lives, really. Mm. Um, I'm not sure that I, I was conscious of that. Whilst... So you were almost coaching them, really? Yeah. I don't, oh, not consciously. It wasn't, it wasn't called coaching in the Yeah, case, no, 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 coaching not, didn't not exist, consciously. Yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed that. And if I'm brutally frank, I also enjoyed the fact that you can make shed loads of money in recruitment. It's highly lucrative. Yeah. And I was very good at it. So I was achieving um, success as I then saw it, which was, you know, get promoted, earn more money. And to be honest, that kind of depicted pretty much 20 years of that career. And I bought the company that I was running when I was 30. I was 30, uh, 32, I think, when I bought the company that I was you running. You actually bought it? I did, I did an MBO. Wow. Um, got millions of pounds in debt. Um, <laughs> I really did, it was ridiculous. Uh, but that was the- Did you, you know, ever get yourself out of that? I did, yes I did, wow. yeah. I, I, yeah, I really did, I, and I got out of it um, about five years earlier than then I should have paid it off really quickly. Well done. But it was millions. And um, and so I was running this fairly successful, well, very successful search practice. I was, I'd had... What was it called? Was there a name? It was called Highfield Human Solutions. Okay. It had been going for years, because like I said, I bought it from the then owner. The then owner had been the global CEO of Mars. Oh, yeah. And so actually, I honestly think I had the best training <laughs> Yeah. because I was a direct report to the guy that had run Mars globally. So wow. he taught me loads. I mean, he taught me well, pretty much everything, I guess, by that stage in my life. Yeah. And then he enabled me to buy the company. He was much older uh, and ready to retire. And he, he basically created the financial mechanism in which I could buy the company. Um, and so I ran this, this company. For how long? For... Oh, 10, 10 or 12 years, I guess, wow. before, before I did what, what you know, I did a pivot and did something very different. And, and we were talking earlier about dark, dark times of our lives. What, what was the darkest time of your life? Um, so apart what from, did you learn from that? Yeah, so apart from what happened to, to, to mum, which was hideous and lasted for decades. Um, so, so I was about 42. I'd been running my search firm, as I said, for about 10, 12, my own for 10, 12 years. Um, Were you married and had yeah, kids? Yeah, very happily married. I've been with my husband for nearly 30 years. He's the, the kind of the, he's the rock. <laughs> he enables everything. So we've got three children. Wow, yeah. And so at the age of 42, my oldest two were 10 and 11 and my youngest was 10 or 12 months old, you know, wow. very young. And um, it was about three o'clock in the morning and I woke up with an excruciating pain in my chest. And I thought, my God, I'm dying, it's a heart attack, I'm dying. Um, and within hours, I was in intensive care. Wow. And I remember in this sort of haze of morphine, which is the best drug on the planet. <laughs> Don't say, just say no, but oh my God, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> through a haze of morphine, I heard the doctor say to my husband, when people present with this illness, uh, we look at their symptoms on a scale of one to 10. One being, give them a paracetamol, send them home. 10 being a very painful and quick death. And I'm sorry to tell you, but your wife's a nine. <laughs> and I remember what was thinking, this illness? It was severe acute pancreatitis. Right. So caused by the choices that I was making in my life. I'm apps, 
absolutely convinced yeah. that one... This is a lifestyle illness. It was absolutely caused by the choices I was making in my life, in my lifestyle, drinking too much, partying too hard, working too long hours, being a control freak, worrying about keeping the success that I'd believed I needed. Yeah. Um, and I was living a discordant life because I was really good at this thing, yeah. very successful at it, but I didn't enjoy it. I didn't love the industry at all. I didn't believe I was making a difference. I didn't believe that I was doing what I was put on the planet to do. Yeah. And and I was so you were off purpose, not on purpose. I was totally off purpose. I didn't even know what purpose meant. Mm. And I, I was conflicted. And yeah. so highly stressed, anxious, drinking too much to numb it. And acute pancreatitis is the biggest killer of alcoholics. I wasn't an alcoholic, but I was really close. Yeah. If that hadn't happened, then I would have died through alcoholism within the next decade anyway. I'm convinced wow. of it. Wow. Um, but it did happen. And to be quite honest, it was like a gift. It yeah. was a gift from whatever higher power is out do you, there. Do you drink as much now? Or? No, God, no. And in fact, I was teetotal for seven years afterwards. Right. And now I can have a glass of wine every now and then. But uh, I don't. And I don't need to because what I'm doing now fills me with complete joy. Yeah. So it's a very different place. But coming out of that illness, and obviously I did survive, and... What pulled you through? Uh, I don't really know. I don't know. Sheer, Bit of a fighter? I am a fighter. I did, not consciously, but I'm pretty no. sure that nothing was going to kill me. I mean, I, I had to get over the shock that I wasn't immortal, right? I mean, I really thought I'm immortal. <laughs> You're only going to live forever. I can, I can, I can achieve anything. I'm going to, you know, remember that that's my drive. And my mum yeah. told me You're I was going to achieve anything. Yeah. So um, I did. I did pull through it with the help and support. I mean, my husband went through all of it with me, and and you know the recovery. Uh, the stay, emotion. Stay with your husband for a moment, yeah. because partners to anybody men to women, women to men, uh, are crucial if you get the right one. And also it's disastrous if you have the wrong partner. Mm. Um, but it sounds like you've got the right one. What, what are his qualities? Let's acknowledge, and what's your husband called? Mike. Mike, what's, what's Mike's qualities and what do you admire about him as a, as a human? He is one of the most generous people I know. He thinks of other, he never thinks, he's the opposite of self, selfish, like complete, the flip opposite. He is um, so, he's calm, he's, um, he's a giver, he's sensitive, he's supportive, he's encouraging. I, I mean, he's literally the centre of our world. The, my daughters idolise him mm. and he's brought them up because yeah. he allowed me to go and do what I needed to do. Um, he thinks that's a privilege. Mm. I think, oh, my God, he made sacrifices for me. He didn't see them as sacrifices at all. Mm. He sees that as a complete privilege. Uh, he feels that I've sacrificed <laughs> because I wasn't with the, with the girls as they were, you know, the mm. babies. I didn't mm. bring them up. I wasn't the person that stayed at home nurturing them. Yeah. He's the nurturer. So um, Good choice, then. He's, Good choice. He's, it's the best. I mean, honestly, he is the love of my life without How a shadow of a doubt. We were in recruitment together. In fact, I was running one part of the business and he was running the other part of the business. I was 25 years old. He was 27, I think. And um, so we were colleagues. Yeah. And um, Was it like that? Did you meet and fall in love? Or oh, my you... God, yeah. We went, out, we went out on our first date on a Sunday and by the Friday he'd moved in. 
was it. That was it. We That's great. We and that was 30 years ago? Yep. Fantastic. Yep. Well, no, thank you for acknowledging Mike. I think it sounds like you, you've chosen a special guy. And and then this this whole change that you realized you had to change. You mm. couldn't live this life which was wrecking your body. Mm. What did and you then mind. do? And your mind. Yeah. Well, I had to go through a period of kind of psychological recovery. And that took a, long, long, a lot longer than the physical recovery did. Um, and I really had to, had to go through this, this face, face fact that I'd caused this thing. I'd manifested mm. that illness. Um, and that was, all, that was all a big shock. And I needed to analyse what was it that I really wanted to do with my life. I just kept thinking, oh, my God, if I had died. And I could have died within hours. Pancreatitis can kill oh, yeah, you like you meningitis can. can. Yeah. Um, I just kept thinking, Jesus... I could have died in that moment, and what would I have let? I'd have left my husband and my and my daughters without a mother. I I would have left all of the people within my business without a boss, and I haven't developed them as well as I should have. So maybe they would find it more difficult to get jobs without me. This is all, all the rhetoric, the narrative I was telling myself in my head. Haven't made a difference. Haven't made an impact. Haven't left a legacy. Um, haven't made any waves in the world. Haven't. I just haven't been my best self. And I kept thinking, that's just shit. You know, I could die, to, I could die today. Mm. And I decided that that's what really had to change, that I had to make sure that I was living the kind of life where I thought, if I die today, it's a really, really good day to die. Every day. Because there's um, that lovely uh, chain, and I'm very conscious of that. And uh, here it is, memento mori, the skull on it. Remember you're mortal, mm. that you can leave life right now. Yeah. Um, it, you don't know what's happening. So make the most of, of now, each day yeah. and be with the people you're with. And be and the relationships. best. Be the best you can be. Not the yeah. best of. Be the best you can yeah. be. Be your best self. Um, and that was a really, a real change. So I had to analyse, you know, well, what could I do then? You know, what, what does the world need? <laughs> it doesn't need another bloody headhunter. It really doesn't. <laughs> you know, how can I make a difference? How can I build something that will last far longer than me? How could I build something that my family will be proud of me building? Um, you know, how can I just make a difference? Mm. So how did you find your sense of purpose and how did you create 10 years ago the marketing academy what, what was the idea did it come by accident did it sort of iterate mm. slowly and you start to think this is look fun. to really tell you the journey it would take two three podcasts in that rates and i might write a book i'm going to write a book i will yeah. definitely definitely write a book about it because it was a it was a gentle process uh, spread over time that i've always considered as a, a series of fortunate events where the stars literally aligned for me. Um, and I just started, I'd already been on the board of a leadership development company, I was on the board of a leadership development company. Awesome. The, this leadership development company has their two day program embedded in all of the programs we teach on the academy. It's called The Living Leader. Okay. And the owner of The Living Leader is now 76 years old, is one of my closest friends, godmother to my youngest daughter. And I was on their board and I'd been through their program and I had just done the uh, the train the trainer so i'd just become a facilitated trainer yeah. of this program and that was a real life changer for me 
and really enabled me to understand the difference between management and leadership and what inspirational leadership really meant and what fabulous communication really meant and the fact that you could own and take all of responsibility for all of the choices that you make in your life. I think without that, I may not have got through that illness as well as I did. Mm. Um, but what that had done is ignited a complete passion in me that I didn't know I had, which was about developing other people. Yeah. And um, so I knew that whatever I was going to do needed to be around developing others. It had been a complete kind of sea change for me, a different lens that said the best leaders are the ones who develop other leaders. Yeah. That's what leaders showing leaders. And that's all that's what leadership should be. Yeah. And therefore I knew it needed to be in leadership. And I wanted the end to the commercial success drivers that had made me work make the choices to work 18 hours a day, mm. driving for more money to get a bigger house, to get bigger cars, to spend, you know, more expensive holidays, stuck on this treadmill with not even having the time to spend the money I was making. Mm. I needed to get off that treadmill. Yeah. And so I knew it, I wanted it to be a philanthropic exercise. I wanted it to be, I wanted to go and work in a charity or a non-profit. It was 2008, 2009, so the markets had all crashed. So none of the charities were hiring anybody. Everybody was scrabbling. The markets were crashing. It was a horrible time. Yeah. And I thought, well, if I can't find something, I'm going to have to set something up. I'm, I'm going to have to create something. Um, and with the series of fortunate events, which were basically leading me, I'd opened my eyes Mm. to doing something different. I think as soon as you start putting that out there to the universe, it, it's going to deliver it you back. And I was led to some amazing people who I talked about this mad idea I had of creating this place of learning which would have mentors and coaches and would develop emerging talent. And I wanted it to be in marketing, media and advertising because that's the industry that can change the citizens of the planet and how they think and feel. Ah, Therefore, the one in which could one, create yeah. the biggest impact. Yeah. And over an 18-month period, we built the strategy that then became the Academy and we launched it in 2010, yeah. so exactly 10 years ago. It, it, it's, it's amazing what you've achieved. And I, I find the people that Lee and I meet uh, as, as some of your, sort of your team, as volunteers to contribute, um, teach us so so much and, and I know Lee I mean you know, people say you know she's changed their lives and, and so you've changed lives through the people you've chosen uh, and I know that, that there's such a network of people they're all linked to each other from mm. having been alumni and marketing camp. yeah last point because we could as you say we could do three more podcasts but, uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll write the book uh, we'll keep it we'll keep it for the book what would you leave as your last top tip for for the listeners on the podcast about being a good leader? What's, what's really the practical thing that they could apply in their day-to-day -day lives to be better leaders? Yeah, I think, I think the most practical thing I could say to anyone is, and I can't say it in one sentence, so firstly, that absolutely everybody can be an outstanding leader. Leadership is not about being in a position of power or authority or responsibility or managing people, managing mm. a team. What fabulous leadership about is about having a positive influence over someone else in your life. Yeah. It could be anybody. So absolutely everybody has the capability of being an outstanding leader. Mm. You just need to choose to be the best version of yourself you can possibly be in any moment. Right. And if you put other people first in that, in every moment, then you're 
your whole lens will be on supporting other people to be the best that they can be in any moment. And that for me is what leadership is all about. Sherilyn, thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you on the Inspiring Leadership Series. Thank you so much. And I think all that you do in the Marketing Academy makes a huge difference to people's lives. And I love the way you just show up in life. So thank you very much. Thank you. Really great being here. Thank you. Bye. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.